Hey guys, it's Brandon with DIY Sound Library here. And today we have an awesome episode with producer, engineer, musician, and technician, Kevin McMahon. My band's worked with Kevin on our last record, and he's been awesome. He's been such a huge help with everything with our music. And he has worked with some massive bands, massive record labels. Bands like Pyle, Titus Andronicus, Swans. He did Real Estate's last album. Reduction Plan, Parlor Walls, Widow's Peak, and so much more. He operates Marcata Studio up in New York. He does everything from recording to mixing, mastering, and everything in between. He is a veteran in the music industry, and I highly respect his opinion. Hopefully you guys can get some awesome tidbits and advice out of this episode and learn a little bit about his process and how he works with music. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming on to this uh, this little podcast I have going on here. Yeah, um, it means a lot. I mean, you you mixed our record, and we we just love the process with with like working with you and basically how the whole thing went. So we're we're super excited um, that you got to do that for us. How was that on your end? I I really loved it. Um, I thought you guys did a a really fantastic job. Um, especially arranging the music. Uh, I mean, I think we talked a lot about miking right. you know, and things like that. And I, I, you know, I suppose somewhere technically, you know, in there, somebody could look at like the, particularly like the room mic in there, but um, you know, on everything, yeah. but, uh, but without sort of dissecting that or getting, you know, critical on it. Like I, I basically just really loved the music and it was a fascinating sort of view into how you guys had worked. Um, it seemed like you guys touched on a lot of things in your process that would, would normally be maybe some editorials I would have about things that people maybe don't do or, or things that, that a a modern message tells people that they're not supposed to do in terms of you guys having everything really worked out, um, as you came to the, the floor to record it. Um, yeah, right. right. And that's kind of, um, that's kind of like my main kind of overall question here is a lot of bands nowadays do a lot of stuff, DIY, do it yourself, right? Yeah. Where they'll record a lot of the project by themselves or mix part of it or something like that. So how has that been working with a lot of, I mean, I'm sure you've worked with some bands who record stuff by themselves. Hmm. Um, and that whole culture has changed from a traditional studio environment to do it yourself. So how do you see that whole thing? I mean, there's, there's definitely pros and cons. Uh, I was, I'm, I'm pretty self-conscious about my gripes with it. Uh, because I know that a it's people start someplace. And, um, I think a lot of things that concern me about that process are less about the technical part of it than right. maybe some other dogmatic, you know, ideas uh, or definitions that I think seep into the term DIY and how that influences a lot of people uh, to think they're supposed to do something if they've been influenced by that scene, by the existence and the sure. visibility and what that scene appears to be about. Um, so I think those things are concerning to me on a different level than like what may or may not be the, you know, like a band's ability to record things the best quote unquote, you know, in quotes, best, whatever that means. Um, right. Right. You know, I, strangely, even though I have a lot of really good equipment and I, th- I think I know a few things. Um, I think when it comes to how, how people who, are not experienced with recording tend to record things. Uh, I, I tend to be pretty supportive of a lot of the stuff that I hear. I actually, I actually find that, that people who, who largely don't maybe think they know that much about recording tend to record things really well. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, because I think, you know, they're, they're not enamored with the bells and whistles or things that, that we've read about. Um, or things that really, you know, like take for instance the idea of a compressor, uh, and the uh, the mythology versus the the reality of what a compressor is good for, 
and yeah. how often you hear somebody who really does have a lot of experience talk about like, you know, squashing the crap out of something or, um, you know, there's like a lot of terminology that, that people use, uh, in excitement about like what a compressor is supposed to, you know, supposed to do, but there's sure. fundamentally kind of like a misunderstanding with a lot of people. I, I hear a lot of people make reference to, um, you know, really compressing something to turn it up. And though it is factual that if you do compress something and you turn up the output gain, it does make it louder and appear to be louder because the transients have been taken down. You know, it is not factual that a compressor turns anything up. It, you know, does the opposite. Um, right, what is right. my point with that? Oh, uh, so I, I mean, I think a lot of people who might re record something who are sort of like, I I don't know anything about this. Um, they will often take a relatively decent microphone and just sort of put it in a reasonable spot and, you know, follow the rules of the little lights that tell them to record something and they sort of get something together. Whereas I find that I have more problems maybe with things that somebody might send me where it's like, you know, a, a kind of experienced person who's read a lot of things about compression and therefore you might get something that ends up being like, all right, it might've been recorded good, but it might be really drastically over EQ'd or uh, over compressed in some way that you're presented with something that's like, oh, if you just would have just sort of aimed the microphone and just not done much to it, you know, you get something that somebody else could like, you know, take and really do something with. So, and a lot right, of those right. things aren't even necessarily, uh, I don't think that there's a good or a bad quotient to that. It's more that if you are, if you're in the position where you're supposed to do something and you have to make a change to something and you can't make a change to it, then, then that becomes sort of problematic. Um, right. Right. So you're kind of stuck, you're stuck there in that moment. Yeah. Um, but, but right. I find that, uh, that the recording part of it may not, well, I don't know. Uh, am I, am I rambling past the question? No, I think you're okay. right on point. I mean, that kind of leads into my next question, which is, you know, what does it really take for a band to record a great record nowadays? Um, especially cause people do a lot of it by themselves. Like what does it really take to make a great record? Hmm. Um, in, in your eyes, I feel like the only thing that makes any record really great has to do with the music or, or, or what I like to believe is the combination, you know, the vision of the artist. Um, so I find myself talking a lot with people if I'm producing them, you know, before we start working and right straight through it, I feel like a lot of things that I say have to do with trying to get somebody to be really in touch with why they're doing something. Um, and to, right. you know, it, it, to nurture the existence of people feeling like what drives it is the vision and not the technical aspects or the recording technical aspects or the, certainly the, um, the, the PR, you know, aspect of things, uh, which I feel like has been, there's a huge awareness of that. I'd say in the last seven, seven to maybe 10 years or something like that, that prior to that, you didn't really have, I think there was a time where people in my shoes might be trying to introduce bands to the idea of, of a PR, you know, position. Sure. Um, whereas now I feel like, you know, before somebody's even got a budget for a recording, they might, you know, have a budget for their PR campaign, which that, even that might be dated now by like five or six years. Cause I, I think that's gone out the window, but, uh, sure. so I think the vision, you know, is a huge thing. Um, I think there's a lot of different types of music. So not every, like for instance, the thing that really worked with you guys as a band, um, had to do with you all coming to the table as a band and knowing how to play the material and you captured it live and that seems like the music you do is about that so in that particular in the, in that sort of arena where it's about how a band plays together then i 
I think, you know, the vision followed with knowing what the material is and really making, you know, I don't know if making a demo or just practicing your ass off or doing both, but doing something so that when you come to the floor, um, as many of the questions that are going to be referred to when somebody like myself starts mixing it and a band is, is sending references to what they sound like. It's like, hopefully as you, before you hit record, you, you have as many of those things in the works, you know, right. so that for instance, well, even if you're recording something like on your phone or no matter what you're using to record it with, you know, that you're not leaving the whole thing up to the recording and the processing of something like after the fact. Um, right. It's like you're, you're pretty much, you have this vision and you're really trying to hit that vision first and you're not relying on like some mix to fix it or something like that. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, with, with, within that terminology, it definitely brings to mind, you know, the idea of fixing things in the mix, um, which I, I think is added to in this day and age of fixing mixes in mastering, um, fixing things, you know, fixing performances with editing. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of things that, that kind of preemptively tell all musicians in this day and age, if they're not somehow introduced to the topic or looking for it themselves, most things will promote the idea that the, what I consider the most important thing, which is, is that the person show up being the thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot that sort of disguises that now, um, and really makes it pretty easy for people to sort of not either be prepared or not really know that much, even about, you know, the 10 different roads presented to them with every single topic that's going to come up in the first two hours of recording. Um, you sure. know, just being like, where are you going to put a mic? What's the, you know, are you actually playing the instrument? Uh, or, or have you ever been playing the instrument that matches the sound? you know, that you want, um, uh, certain, you know, topographies, just real simple things like humbuckers versus single coils and somebody's idea of a guitar sound, um, uh, or, uh, you know, again, somebody's idea of a guitar sound and in their head, they're actually referencing something that was probably done with like a small, you know, amplifier that the amplifier was like breaking up in a way. And that idea is, utterly unknown and there's like a distortion box uh yeah. you know in its place and and there's not that much attention given to that for instance because maybe these topics aren't known and and the little switch isn't flipped on until perhaps at the very end when the mixing is happening and then sure. a very attentive thing can happen where and I've seen this a few times where I've, I've really been very, very, very surprised because maybe all the rest of the way through the process. And again, this, this would be more in a situation where I was like recording, you know, so I was around for the whole thing where I would, I would have had the impression up until the very end that, that there was like a very cavalier or a casual sort of like vibe about like things. And maybe there wasn't that strong of an opinion. Um, which can actually be sort of alarming. I think to me, I, maybe a lot of people who've produced things might feel the same and that might be a strong word, but, but you know, if you're working with somebody and you get the impression you present one thing or this thing or this thing or this thing, and they're all different and there's like a, Oh yeah, that's, that's cool. That's, Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. And it's just like, well, but none of these things are the same, you know? And so one right. of these, one of these really has to be cool. Uh, and the yeah. other ones kind of have to be dog shit, or at least one of them has to be dog shit because otherwise it's like, you're sort of like, where are we going? And that's the thing right, where it's right. like, if every decision has all these distinct roads that stem from it and you keep making decisions and making decisions without understanding that sort of process, then you can, you know, either love where you get accidentally and I can be way behind that. 
um, you know, where maybe people don't have that strong of an idea right up to the end and they're constantly in real time and just making decisions about what they're presented to. I think that's valid. Um, sure. and I don't think, you know, I, I don't know that I'd be critical of that as much as it would, you know, again, this sense of alarm of being like, does the artist know where they're going? Because there's all these paths and you can get super lost. Um, right. So it's, it's like, for me, the more I've made more music over the years, it's like, it's always seems better to make the hard decisions first and don't just leave it up to someone else who touches it afterwards. Um, so if you're not working with a producer, you essentially take on that role as the producer, hmm. even if you are recording it yourself. And, and like you said, you have all these different options and maybe they all sound cool, but you have to clearly choose one or else your music just kind of sounds maybe messy or undefined. Um, or it could be like, I mean, again, yeah, sometimes could potentially you know, think sometimes that process leads, uh, you know, to some great thing, you know, meaning that I guess it's, it's, it's hard to be absolute in any of the things, uh, that I think about things. I know I'm, I'm certain about them in a certain context, but unfortunately there's always, there's always right. something where you're like, I'm sure that this is like the wrong way to do it. And it ends up being like, yeah, but there is absolutely a way to do that where that's the only way to do it. But, um, but yeah. Right, right. Um, cool. and again, I yeah. think, you know, that stuff is, is, is really defined by what the artist is looking to do. And again, you know, sort of referencing it back to working with you guys in particular, it seemed like there was, there was, you know, what you guys are doing is that kind of music. Um, and it, uh, and sometimes, you know, especially music that gets built up um, that isn't about capturing a band or any communication between people, you know, that does, you know, really present a whole different thing. And that would probably be the thing that would contradict most of the things that I might have just said, because, you know, that that thing where you're really starting with something that is just here's here's this one idea. And by definition, there is no preparation that's supposed to be done and there is no communication between people and maybe we're actually going to try and conjure uh the imagery of being in a very phantasmal place you know maybe this this the final product is going to be very animated seeming you know that there would be a lot of different considerations and um now you've worked with a bunch of really big bands in the area um real estate pile one of my favorites piles awesome um titus andronicus between all these different records that you've worked on, is there any kind of um, connection between them that make them all great? I think all of those bands that you mentioned, and then like if you add like Swans and like Widow's Peak, you know, you, you do start to see a list of bands that kind of expressly is what I'm talking about with having a vision. Um, you know, nice. those, those are all bands that have such a clear vision of themselves, uh, mm -hmm. that it's kind of hard to fuck it up. Um, <laughs> and the, the bands that have been, I guess, more com commercially success, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the metric for the success is, I find to be who I'm talking about when I'm talking maybe to other bands um, about needing that vision because uh, yeah, I think all of, all of those bands and I mean, I think a lot of bands that I've worked with, there's an intensity to it. Like the, the, the name Marcata recording um, like the, the term Marcata turns out to be the, the male tense for the word the Italian musical term to play with stress and intensity. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> that's really cool, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a good coincidence that there's a lot of music that I've worked with that has that sort of attribute. Um, yeah. I think, you know, maybe a band like real estate uh, or widow's peak and, you know, many others don't have that. I mean, that's not what they're about is this like bash you on the head intensity sort of thing, but um, sure. Yeah. But there is uh, a thing that seems to gravitate towards me that is all about that. And um, yeah, so I think that's maybe the connection. I think a lot, it probably, 
most of the bands like on that list probably with the except like the like both real estate and widow's peak i think are bands that represent even though there's been live recording for sure like the last widow's peak record i did we we tracked that live whereas the very first one was absolutely like built up sound by sound um as was uh real estate's days the last record that we did uh the main thing had a, a lot of live tracking um and more of an emphasis you know on that but still those things represent sort of like that that more uh, uh fragmented um you know the, the like more of a fragmented recording process and more of a sure. sound design per sound that you're doing and building things with a lot of care about like what the part is and how that fits with other things and layering things and really building it as you go, as opposed to uh, like Titus Andronicus or Swans or really a lot of other bands, like uh, even like Diarrhea Planet, where I think it's like all four guitar players were like, you know, in the room live, no real baffles, guitar solos going down live. Um, yeah. I'm not even sure we used headphones. Uh, I do a lot of things with bands like that where they're not playing with headphones. Um, because at that point, what you are capturing is this communication between the band. Um, and, sure. uh, and it's more important that they hear things the way they always do. And, um, do you think, do you think a lot of that's missing in today's, you know, bedroom studio atmosphere, that connection with the band? I, I mean, if it is, you know, so I guess out of 100% of the, the, the records that are made where people layer up things, and I'm constantly shocked by the types of stories that I hear about how people did records, the most extreme where like drummers play like, it's like, my first pass was just my kick drum. And then my second pass was my snare drum. And then I did my oh. hi-hat by, I'm just, you know, so, uh, so out of 100% of the stories where you hear things where things are built up like that, I would say that there's got to be a pretty big percentage of those things that are only done that way because that is what they could do in that environment. Probably giving a little disclaimer to say that not everything, that you know, that, that particularly where a band is like, yeah, I don't like the way these records are coming out, and then you know, it's factual that they're recording it that way only because they don't have access to a bigger space, then I would say that there's absolutely a lot missing. I would say that, um, sure. I think what I'm trying to stay away from with that answer is sounding like I'm very centric about equipment or a big studio. Um, sure. But I think that part of the answer to that question, or at least what's on my mind about it, uh, and it's not just because I have a studio, but you know, there's a thing that a facility can do, um, or a range of things that can be done in that. That that it's just an ease of workflow uh, that creates a transparency to the equipment, which is sort of the antithesis of what I think gear lust, you know, assumes is the case. I think you know somebody some people might think that when people come into the studio that they want to be blown away with the equipment that's in there in my brain it is i mean it's it is cool to see really cool equipment but there is something where the equipment wants to be transparent because it works and because it's just there and because you weren't impacted by it you weren't right. impacted by coming into a thing that demanded that you do everything really hyperly different and you weren't impacted by coming into a scenario and like doing some abnormally long clinical, sterile sort of technical process, you know, where you get sounds, um, you know, so, um, so I think when all those environments are there and there's a lot of instruments there and then, and there's maybe at least one person, if not a couple of people around who know something where I think things get lost in a bedroom scenario compared to that is just more because you're confronted with doing like a bunch of shit that you weren't necessarily thinking you were going to have to do. And maybe you haven't done it 
as many times as somebody else to know coming into it to be like, this is absolutely going to be the hit list of things that may go wrong and all these other things. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I do find that the, that the DIY process, you know, has a lot of really great things where it's exciting for people to make their own records and a lot of things that though I can navigate my way through it, like meaning recording my own record, which I, I just finished, um, you know, and like that was recorded live uh, with a massive microphone, you know, set up. Um, and it was a 30 some odd minute long piece. And that required me to be, you know, getting everything set up and then, you know, operating, you know, starting and stopping everything and knowing that the computer hadn't stopped where we played straight you know, for a 35 minute piece and it, it's a pain, you know, um, and I have a lot of experience, so I am able to sort of get through that, but I would still say that that's, it's a thing that probably everybody should do at least once. Sure. Even if you don't think that you're interested in it, it's absolutely a thing to do, but doing it every time and the things that you lose as a perspective while you're in the middle of trying to do both those things is what I would say, uh, whether or not it's the home, you know, bedroom recording or whether or not it's maybe in your guy's case, like load into a church, you know, and do it. It's, it's just the, the act of doing it yourself leaves you being like you have to do something and you really have to play really well uh and so if you've got enough experience that you, that it's second nature to do the other recording thing and even that like i think it when it when i was younger and i didn't have a studio and i would do these recordings of my own music like that and go into spaces though again it was super exciting and i was really inspired to do it when i look back on it now it's uh, you know it's like the the product suffered greatly um, in ways that, for instance, the thing I did now didn't simply because I've had a studio in in a spot for over a decade. So, so there's just like a massive range of things. Whether or not it's just mostly dumb things, like got enough like power, <laughs> you know, yeah. to go places. It's like this is where people are going to stand, yeah. and we actually Able. the cable runs actually reach where we're going to go. So we're not, you know, right, right. Two two questions to end it off with. Um, what's your opinion on the whole digital versus analog uh, thing with recording? Yeah, it's horse shit. No. <laughs> uh, I tend to think, yeah, this this is a good one. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm right, but I genuinely believe that I am. Um, I tend to think that analog... Uh, sounding things have in my estimation to do with some dynamics that might have ceased to exist at some point after the 2000s when mastering got critically insanely loud and there were no dynamics um, i tend to think that the topic of warmth being attributed to analog is interesting to me only in that, for instance, um, as an audio tech, once I became an audio tech, one thing I noted was that the tape machine, when it's working and when it's properly calibrated, I noticed was recording things up into the close to a hundred kilohertz. Um, probably to be very accurate i'd say probably not quite that high but super far beyond you know anything uh that we're listening to and i know you have the the sort of subconscious effect of those that seem to have a lot to do with why recording at higher sample frequencies is a good idea uh for people who think it's a good idea um, but the warmth associated with it, you know, would assume maybe that there was some frequency response change happening because of the tape. 
or because of the analog equipment. And I guess those two things should be differentiated, analog tape. And again, if your tape machine is working and it's properly calibrated, you know, you're generally putting a lot of work into making sure that what you put into that tape machine does in fact come off that tape machine right. exactly as you put it in. And then there's some, you know, things about like how you bias it um, and how you set the operating level, which would dictate in terms of when you decide to hit the tape hard and get the tape compression that comes along with that. But again, that those are decided you know, variables of how much and if you want that. Um, and I think that there's a superstition about the idea, particularly with tape, uh, that doesn't really talk about that actual thing. If you get tape compression, it's because you operated the tape machine in a way to get tape compression. You don't have to get tape compression. And, you know, within that, there were a lot of decisions that an engineer would be challenged to make uh, and hopefully guess correctly if they were really going to look at the range of things they could do with tape to really say what, you know, what EQ curve are you using? What bias scheme are you using? What operating level are you using? What flexivity level are you using? How hard are you hitting the tape? Um, you know, and all of those things, you know, whether or not you're going at 15 inches per second or not, you know, whether or not you're going at 15 inches per second and using, you know, noise reduction, you know, there's like so many variables right. uh, to right, what right. tape gets that it, it is really insanely inaccurate for, for, for people to make any sweeping statements about using tape. Um, but having said that in the case of tape, you know, and in the case of like a Neve, you know, or any of the legendary pieces of equipment, you know, there, there was at some point in the process that some, technician who knew a whole lot about like a lot of really esoteric stuff spent a lot of time to make sure that it's like what came into this thing is exactly what came out of this thing sure. um, so the idea of analog being warmer i think is a lot of superstition though as a tech i would also say i know what i mean by that uh and it's true that there is you know there are harmonics and things that come from those things but again you have to use the equipment in a way that gets the set of circumstances you're talking about. I frankly think that a lot of the, the issue people had with digital over analog that became the foundation of the argument for digital versus analog was probably at the very earliest phases of it. Um, the industry pretty much knew that this new technology didn't even have to be good because people were going to buy it. Um, the most expensive digital machines that, that came out at the, at the first run of digital equipment were really high end and there was no consumer gear. I mean, the stuff was made by the military to record submarines, um, mm -hmm. you know, so that you had zero noise floor. So, you know, that at some point before anybody used it for music, somebody knew how to make that stuff as good as the most expensive mastering grade converters that are out there now. So, but right. that isn't really what most people bought uh, in the first run of it. And there were a lot of rules like about clocking um, in particular and dither uh, and sample frequencies and just how hard to, you know, hit the equipment that people didn't right. really know that I think account for there being like user error more than it being anything that inherently is not total superstition for people to say that there can be an argument of digital versus, you know, analog. I, I frankly, I think that the biggest, the biggest part of that argument is super real in terms of saying that the process of working with analog equipment tends to be one that goes back to the beginning of this conversation of being like, you don't have the ability to fix things. There are limitations to the, uh, to what you can do to how many tracks you can like use, um, to how many takes you can do to how long your roll of tape is. Uh, right. there's a million limitations, you know, that, that all, and, and, you know, though you would be able to look at the, the tape machine and the VU meters, like on the tape machine, you weren't confronted with this like graphical interface. Um, 
you know, a lot of times if, if I have the opportunity to work without a computer and they're just the the sheer emotional response that comes from not being confronted with the computer, I think is probably more valid as a statement about the difference between them. And it has nothing to do with the the sonics. Right. Um, Right. I also think that there's, it's almost like it's a, it, it like forces you in a way to perform better. For me, when I mm. stare at the computer screen, I just get out of the zone of the music so much. Mm. Um, it, it's harder for me to to create a great song if I'm just staring at a computer the whole day. I would rather be fiddling with my guitar or like talking with my bandmate on how to make this better. It's like I feel like those limitations can can also be a good thing, um, and it, it goes both ways, I guess. But yeah, I think they're largely good things. Um, you know, I think there's an irony that I, I bet most the engineers of that time, like I don't think engineers were running around raving about tape. You know, at at that right. time, I think they were they were largely like, okay, th- this stuff is really noisy, and here are the issues with it, and I wish somebody would like fix these things, and if they would, sure. um, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I think the the limitations are really good, and that that's like a really big. Right, right. A big area. I also, I, I think the levels of the operating levels of things, um, I've come to find that I believe digital just likes to be recorded quieter in terms of it sounding good, which is the opposite of everything you were doing in analog where you were trying to overcome tape hiss. I mean, even the idea of slamming to tape did become known by engineers to have like kind of a cool sound. But the first times it was happening had more to do with being like, if you don't overcome the tape hiss, you are left with tape hiss. Yeah, um, it'll just sound bad. <laughs> yeah. So everything, you know, I mean, frankly, that, that the, the digital thing is interesting because it opens up a lot of potential to use all kinds of preamps that were not you know, they didn't have enough headroom and enough output in them. There's like a lot of devices sure. floating around now sure. that, that have I mean, like 40 dB of gain as opposed to like 75 to 90. Yeah. Um, and so the definition of a good preamp back in the day was also really based on, you know, what kind of gain it had, whereas you really, you don't need that gain now. Um, yeah. Anyway. And, and the thing is a lot of, I, I honestly like most bands today everybody records at home everybody has their own digital setup nowadays so hmm. it's kind of just the new norm you know it's just the thing a lot of people are using and a lot of people have success with it hmm. um which is interesting to see like even pop stars record at home with their own setup sometimes and use that to to their advantage hmm. um and that kind of leads me to my last question is, you know, what's kind of your your advice to all these bands on the come up who are just trying to make great music? They want to put out the best records they can. You've worked with hundreds of bands at this point. What would be your advice? Man, I think I think actually as of the last 5 months that answer has drastically changed. Uh I am curious to see what kinds of things happen as a result of this pandemic um, that are opening a lot of a lot that are changing a lot of what the potential answer that I could give. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, in terms of making music and coming up with music that's artistically vital that that, you know, we we sort of covered in terms of of just really being like focus on like why you're doing it. Um, uh, or, or I guess hopefully people are focusing on doing it for some reason other than, you know, what has become like a visible sort of career path, um, a very visible, like, you know, career path, uh, that ironically I'd say up until very recently that the career path, the fine print of that was, is like, nobody was even, nobody was making money from it. Um, meaning from a record uh and people weren't even necessarily like making the record with the intent to make any money from it like the the concept of value was being stripped you know away from it i i think that trend has changed and and there's been a lot of things that bands have been very industrious in in the last handful of years where they are sort of thinking about monetizing it which you know 
you didn't really ask about, but I think that it is important. Um, it's not exactly about being capitalistic about it. Uh, it is absolutely about sustainability to me. And I think that there's probably a lot of reinventions and different answers about how it can happen, but it used to really worry me the idea that musicians were that, that the, um, that the currency seemed that it was about gaining social media, you know, credibility and other things, uh, that the making of the record was really an arbitrary artifact that was being made that facilitated touring, which was tangible in terms of people being able to show up in a room and really experience something. So that being quote unquote real, but probably more often than not, like most of the activity that was generated from the actual existence of the record became about how to conjure the idea of an image that other people would like to see. That might, sure. Somebody might think that that sounds close to what I was saying about the, the vision thing, but I think it's the opposite. I think like people being driven because they understand that there's a such thing as having an image and directing an image and that image conjuring the idea that you have stardom somewhere behind you for the sake of stardom uh, with the art that you're making being very secondary to me seems like that, that there are very few people who benefit from that and the overarching audience experience doesn't go that well. And then those things even match the lack of monetization from it. It's like if things, if the quality... Well, I feel like... At least in my perspective, that seems to be the the main um, line of offense with big record labels, with especially like pop artists. It's like put out some easy music and we'll tour and sell merch. And that's how we make the money because people don't buy music anymore. Mm. You know, so there's less there's less effort into what makes an artistically uh, awesome album and it's more about the side stuff it's more about the merch sales it's more about mm. the, the touring and everything else on the side again um, there'd be an element that i don't know how it would be interpreted by people i don't think it's a capitalism capitalism statement that i'm making to me when i see that i i still say thank god when there's like anything that people are doing that that comes down to being like and we're generating money only yeah, because yeah, sure. the idea being like, you know, being that it costs money to do everything. If people unconsciously have some idea that um, if you're just doing things and there is no promise to make any money back from it, the question really becomes how often is somebody going to do that? Right. Um, so to me, right. it just seems a sustainability problem when, when everything was so much uh, more about the social media thing than even the awareness on the merchandise you know the merchandise i think uh well i think that relates i think that there may be some changes to the value of of a record being that the money that was generated from all things live and again you started having the industry doing 360 deals and things that put money into not just the band's pockets but there was a lot of money being generated that i think accurately yeah. represents money lost from record sales. And I think that there was a cooperative trade-off of sorts uh, with the idea of streaming and other things uh, that have, have sort of killed record sales. Um, and I have a little bit of, of a hope and a sneaking suspicion slash, you know, between them, it's, it's a pretty hopeful one that there would be some value in record sales it would come back and not because anybody's really concerned about the artist, but just because the industry itself understands where there's like a money flow and the industry probably more than the artist understands revenue and it wants to make revenue and it makes revenue and it doesn't want to lose making revenue. So I'm kind of hoping that now that nobody can go to a show and nobody can really tour and you can't you know sell merchandise uh that there would be something that would happen that would put some value back into something that that is also for the time being the one thing uh the one way to really engage you know with with an artist yeah. so i think it also hopefully it puts it puts in my estimation more pressure on the 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 artistic content of of bands uh sure. to be vital 
Um, but it could be a really exciting time, yeah. you know, for that because of like all this stuff that's going on. So with, within right. that, I would say dig in to understand why you care about making music. Um, and if you yeah. care about it for some reason that you want to say something, even if what you want to say seems trivial, but you really want to say it is different from people doing things that I think they kind of have been. It's a, a kind of annoyingly to me percentage of the time where it seems like, Oh, I am writing a song. I don't know if I really care about writing the song, but I am writing it and I can write it. And therefore I am writing it. Again, all the stuff is really subjective because what the hell could I know uh, about what somebody's doing and what's good or bad. But um, yeah, I think uh, doing, doing things because they matter and, and as though there's some part of you that understands that the time you're spending doing that is uh is frankly time you're 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 using of your life you know that, yeah that you're not going to get back uh yeah. so does it matter what you're doing you know um do it do it like it matters uh because it it yeah. does to a lot of people right now and i think uh that you know and then for, you know from there i don't are, are there is there a technical part of that question of like what bands should do at this point or no i mean it's no. to me it's it's just like a lot of bands in my experience a lot of bands in this area they kind of all want to make it big and make good music and get people to hear their stuff but they just don't know what to do and mm. a lot of efforts put into social media and things like that but at the end of the day i think it comes down to the grassroots of first of all is your music good is it interesting? Are you creating stuff that has a, you know, like you said, a clear vision? And are you are you able to play live? Are you able to showcase that to, mm. to people? And um, and I, I think I the being like, ready yeah. thing, all those things relate to something. I mean, this is maybe more of a statement about me, and it's probably annoying on many levels to many people people for probably pretty valid reasons, you know, in terms of taking things too seriously, you know, but to me, part of what I see with people being ready or, or, or even what the limitations of analog might bring in has to me something to do with like honesty. Uh, and that, that doesn't mean that the, the image that an artist projects has to be honest to who they are. doesn't mean that, that you need to write songs about, you know, issues or anything else like that doesn't mean that 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 you have to be honest in the storyline you know on any level but there is something important to me about that um message that is also not really talked about um and i do find that i at least i want to believe that a lot of the people that i would consider to be really successful embody some kind of like honesty in what they're bringing to the table. Again, it's not about who they are. There's a lot of really successful people who've just been scoundrels. Um, you know, so I, I don't know if I can put a finger on it, but there is something honest in showing up and being that thing uh, and yeah. not having anything else be responsible for showing what it is you're actually like doing um, and intending to do that. And knowing that if you intend to do that, if there's going to be a step at any point in the making of the record where you're going to start noticing like something, you know, in there that you want your art to sound like that is very different from every single thing that you've ever done, you know, in there, I think that instinct at that moment tends to be questionable in terms of like, why does somebody want that? And frankly, you know, I would say even there's probably like a lot of very what seem to be, you know, maybe very high maintenance artists who are really successful where you would imagine that they would be really nitpicky to the nth degree. And maybe they are really nitpicky about certain things. But at the same time, I often find some of those people are really laid back about some things that, that other people aren't because, um, because they brought it, if that makes any sense, you know. So the yeah. things they are nitpicky about, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I I think it gets fuzzy what I'm saying in there, but um, <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, that's that's perfect, honestly. I mean, that's pretty much everything I have. I mean, do you, you have anything else you'd like to uh, say for the the few people listening? <laughs> um, no, I mean, good luck. Uh, I'm I'm curious to hear stories. Like, I, I wonder, are bands playing? You know, are bands in rooms with each other yet? Are um, you know, like, what yeah, are that's... what are people are you know, what are people doing? Um, yeah, that's uh, a great that's a great thing I should explore is hit up some of these bands and you know just ask them straight up. Are you guys practicing? Because I know we aren't. It's been yeah. really hard to get us together and and in, and in the same room. It's tough. Yeah. Um. So yeah. That's that's great. I'll I'll definitely ask some of that stuff for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, you operate a studio up in New York, right? You. Yep. You still open for business, right? I mean, yeah. It's it's it is open, uh, and it's mostly been a thing that I have done some mixing alone in, uh, and I've done some. I guess it would be called, I guess, artist development with somebody. Um, that is served with an opportunity for her to write and demo songs and for me to sort of beta test, you know, what the process is like and to try and wrap my head around like what, you know, the just crazy weird little logistical things like, Oh, I need a tuner. Okay. Here's a tuner. Oh, can I, can I hand use a tuner? Do I, you know? Um, so right. yeah. Right. I mean, you got the full studio and, mixing recording mastering you pretty much do everything there right yeah um and there's like a lot of room you know it's um i am gonna convert what was the the sleeping you know area so that i have i guess what would be like a fourth room you know in there um yeah yeah there's a lot of space cool. come upstate it's great it's, yeah it's beautiful up there last time we went it was it was fucking nice it's trees everywhere it's just not too many people around it's isolated beautiful spot yeah it's uh, yeah. although i think most of the city seem to be uh <laughs> relocating up here right now so wow all yeah. right well that's that's pretty much it i mean again thanks so much for coming on i, I really appreciate it yeah thanks, thanks for on. having me all right guys if you made it this far thank you so much for listening i know that was a long one um, but he just had so much information. It was awesome just hearing that. Check out his website uh, at kevinsmcmahon.com. K-E-V-I-N-S-M-C-M-A-H-O-N.com. That's his website. You can contact him there if you need any studio recordings, mixing, mastering, anything like that, producing. Uh, he's your guy. Um, hit him up there and he'll help you out. All right, guys, this is DIY Sound Library, and thanks again for tuning in. Peace.